As to the soul and the belief that it is immortal by nature, this is the, this is the crux of 3,000 years of Egyptian civilization. For Egypt, Egypt was a one-issue civilization, and the immortality of the soul was that to which everything the Egyptians did was consecrated. That preoccupation with, almost obsession with, immortality is what is responsible for the tremendous temples, the tombs, the pyramids, and all of the attention that the Egyptians themselves lavished upon death, which was not seen by them as the end, but rather as the threshold to another level of transformation. That which leads, or which can lead, to the immortality of the soul. Of the many arcana bequeathed to us by ancient Egypt, perhaps the most important is the least appreciated. It is the greatest secret of all, the book of what is in the duat. It is a map of what to do in the afterlife. Welcome back to episode 42 of the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. Again, this is episode 42, and we're going to continue with the series John Anthony West, Magical Egypt, part 5. Again, if you want to start from the beginning, which I highly suggest, go back to episode 38, where you'll hear um, part 1 of the 8-part series with a brief in introduction from me and a little breakdown of my views on it. It's a little informative. I get into it and, you know, give it a little views, synchronistic views from, synergistic views rather from um, different angles and such. So I think it's kind of informative uh, if you want to. But again, so this is uh, Alpha Male Buddhist episode 42 and this is part 5, John Anthony West, Magical Egypt. Hopefully you're enjoying this. Would like to get some uh, emails from my international listeners. I would really like that. So, um, like I said, I'm kind of new at this. I'm really enjoying it. And I hope you guys are getting some benefit out of it because I know I am. And uh, a little tired right now. It's, it's almost uh, almost 2 in the morning over here. And I'm doing all, all 8 of these episodes at one shot. I'm crazy like that. So, let's get into it, man. The general understanding among academics is that, well, the Egyptians were afraid of death and therefore, uh, therefore uh, constructed this elaborate ruse to con themselves into believing that death was not the end. But just bear in mind the possibility that maybe it isn't. Maybe they knew what they were talking about. If it's looked at from a different point of view, um, then the whole elaborate exercise takes on the takes on the guise not so much of superstition but as a very elaborated and highly sophisticated manual of instruction it's a sort of how to do it book on immortality is it possible that they were able to cross the great abyss Do these tombs represent a technology that allowed the deceased to successfully pass through the gates of the duat? Perhaps even, as they themselves declare, to rule in the afterlife? Where could such knowledge come from? Would it not necessitate the point of view of someone or something that was able to see both sides of the veil? Someone or something 
that was able to move between realms to share the knowledge of what lie beyond the great threshold of transformation? If we take them at their word, we are presented with a very rare privilege indeed, the pinnacle of a supernatural technology from a mysterious and ancient lost civilization, once reserved solely for the afterlife use of a god-king. These sacred magical texts may in fact be a roadmap of the afterlife, a magical ladder to heaven. precision and scale of the engineering, the mastery of art, the almost supernatural control over the material world demonstrated by the ancient megaliths and statues is often of a much higher order than we are able to exercise today. Is there any reason to believe that this same degree of technology might not be brought to bear on the primary focus of the Egyptians, the afterlife? We're in the tomb of Tutmosis III, uh, an early New Kingdom pharaoh, and a very great pharaoh. It was Tutmosis III who carved out the Egyptian Empire in the Middle East and is often known as the uh, Napoleon of Egypt. In this tomb, we find one of just two complete representations of the book of what is in the Duat. The book of the Duat may, might be seen as a, as, an, as a manual of instruction, a spiritual guide the traveler's key to enlightenment, you might say. And it provides the information, it provides the information to the deceased pharaoh as to the precise stages that have to be undergone, the precise thresholds that have to be crossed in order to proceed from, the, from death itself, uh, which is a threshold in its own right, to rebirth as a divine being, as a, as a new son, um, as a new Horus. The book of what is in the Duat details the Pharaoh's journey through the Duat or afterlife. It is a handbook of spells and secrets that allow passage through the labyrinthine gates and thresholds of transformation encountered by the deceased. Insofar as is possible, we can, we can, at, least, we can at least go through the hours and follow the action. So it starts, it starts over here with the scarab in a, in, a, in a boat that's perched on a, the symbol that means water, preceded by three water snakes that actually represent larval forms, or you might say the first, the first organic living form which cleaves the water, which cleaves the waters and divides one into two. In the first hour, the deceased may expect to be preoccupied with separation. The snakes are associated with separation or division. Seen in this context, they may represent the forces of dissolution or disintegration that become active in the first hour of the duet. The elemental forces which affect the unbinding of the physical, mental and spiritual aspects of the self. The form up above in the boat is you see the, the deceased within a, a shrine, uh, ram-headed. The divine spark of consciousness enclosed within matter is represented by the ram-headed Amun, who is depicted here enclosed within his tabernacle. And they're in a boat with a number of divine personages. It's that boat that will eventually take the king and different forms of that boat that will take the king through the 12 stages or the 12 hours of the night. The symbolism of a boat on the water demonstrates the consciousness being led through our mysterious interaction with the flow of time, through the landscape of the duet. Through the hours of the night towards its conclusion, a new dawn and a new day. 
Here, the constant flow of time is symbolized as a river, which gently, inexorably leads the inhabitants of the boat through the stages of transformation. In the second hour, in the middle register, the solar bark sets out with the flesh of Ra enclosed in his tabernacle. This time, in addition to the, to the original retinue, two cobras in the prow are identified in red as Isis and Nephthys. The personification of magic occupies the place of she who guides the bark. In the third hour, both upper and lower registers are rich in Anubis and Osiris figures and symbols. The hour is called She Who Cuts Up the Souls. A passage in the text above the third register reads, This is what they do in the West. Roast and hack to pieces the souls, imprison the shadows, annihilate those who are not, who belong to the place of destruction. The text is opaque and enigmatic, but the general tenor indicates a purgatorial region that the solar principle must traverse, a descent still deeper into the earth. The, the Christian conception of hell with all its demons and its hellfire is in all likelihood derived from the, from the Egyptian, but the Egyptian didn't go into, didn't revel in all the details of the, the smell of the roasting flesh and the pain of the hacked bodies. Rather, they were expressing Basically, what the Egyptians were doing was, was, say, was declaring that the souls of those who hadn't done their inner work or who obstructed those who were trying to do their inner work ended up in oblivion. In other words, their names, their identities were obliterated. They weren't consigned to the roasting flames of hell forever, but rather non-existence was considered punishment enough. In the fourth hour, the actual coffin is shown descending into the earth, a schematic that actually represents the tombs themselves. See the coffin in red, the larval forms in front of it, and the coffin is actually going to its final resting place. In the fifth hour, the coffin over here has come to its final rest at the, in the bowels of the earth. This is the birth of the new sun god in the depths of the earth. The life force bursting from the egg forces the earth above into a bulge. At the nadir of the descent of the solar principle, life bursts from its egg with the potential of rejoining the solar source. The winged serpents no doubt are meant to symbolize this potentiality in one form or another. The egg of Sokar represents the final, the most inanimate state of matter it's the, it's the bowels of the earth, but in the egg itself is spirit, the hawk-headed Sokar, holding apart, again, with the winged spirit and this mysterious triple-headed serpent with the deity at the other end, but the power of imminent life within it. In other words, this, is the, this represents the power of life to reascend and become spirit, actually forces a bulge in the earth above it. It's still in the register above that, there's a mound of earth on either side, two birds representing Isis and Nephthys, and a scarab underneath buried in the earth, pulling the tow rope that's attached to the solar bark forward and upward. And the sign all the way up above is the little one, the little sign way up here represents heaven. In other words, the, 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 the power of the, the entire enterprise is pulling the boat, is, is pulling the boat heavenward. It's from its from its, its 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 resting place up eventually through its stages of transformation to the heavens. This is the culminant moment of a life well lived, the consciousness rooted in heaven, using the fulcrum of a higher dimension, pulls the lower register to the upper, a bridge, a ladder to the realm of the netta. It is here that we have successfully transmuted physical matter to divine, the summation and consequence of our inner work. This is the egg that is being pushed by the scarab. In the sixth hour, once again we have the solar bark with the flesh of Ra, um, now not being towed forward, but simply resting on the water. Here it is confronted by a familiar figure in the funerary text. This is the serpent Apop, or Apophis, which is a form of Set, the opposition. In order for the entourage to pass, Set has to be cut in pieces or Apophis has to be cut in pieces every night 
um, and then because the opposition is as immortal as divinity itself um, Apop by night has reconstituted himself and is again the opposition but in order to pass the opposition has to be overcome in the seventh hour Apopis having been um, Apopis having been uh, disempowered the boat continues on its way towed by a number of personages and the imagery here shifts into symbols connoting transformation and metamorphosis the signs of weaving appear the four rams here represent the four states of matter these are transforming principles that are that are taking the flesh of rod the deceased from a lower to a higher level of consciousness in the eighth hour the entourage has now gone up to the top here you see the various um, characters the various deities seated on that little upside down Y in red emphasizing or highlighting its importance and that little sign represents bolts of bolts of, um, of cloth or weaving so again it's the weft and the warp and the the, the putting together of disparate of disparate forms in the ninth hour the boat now continues with a number of mysterious um, more mysterious symbols Kepri the scarab beetle on the top is now rolling its egg forward its eggs of course with its own with its own um, future enshrined within the two the, the 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 sun rises between two serpents on the archetypal register we see a symbolic depiction of the higher processes at work the beetle rolling its egg towards the sun symbolizes the great work the creation of a higher consciousness next to this we see another representation of a risen sun between two standing snakes this may be a depiction of a new consciousness accomplished through the risen kundalini symbolized by the standing snakes the snakes are crossed perhaps indicating a harmonious interworking between the hemispheres the crowns on the twins symbolize the solar and lunar principles which creates another strong symbolic link with the functions and attributes of the left and right brains if this weren't enough a further clue reveals itself hidden in the geometry and negative space of the grouping when compared to an overlay of the human skull its full meaning becomes more apparent the risen sun of the higher consciousness appears at the site of the third eye precisely the point at which the Egyptians depicted the risen Kundalini Cobra in their various statuary and sculpture the twins each have a hand raised to their heads they appear to be thinking or drawing attention to the head further indication of the cerebral nature of the hieroglyph to the right of that is what seems like a depiction of balance perhaps indicative of the stability achieved through harmony and balance of the poles of consciousness in the eleventh hour the process is almost complete the bark is being towed forward the, the, the rope itself now takes the form of the gigantic coiled serpent the personifications of the hours are transporting or preceding the boat and once again this is Mehen the enveloper probably the origin of our of our familiar figure of speech the coils of time up in the top register emphasized in red a small divine figure riding on a serpent in the company of of, 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 of ten stars in other words this is the serpent in the sky this is intellect made divine or the serpent representing duality once again uh, uniting with or this is, uh, uh, duality reconciled or a new one and the the, the legged the legged winged serpent now appears up in the upper register between the two eyes of the, the solar and the lunar eyes of of, um, of Ra in our 11 we see the united hemispheres become the androgyne the solar and lunar principle fused together 
This powerful and sacred symbolism has echoed through history, and strong correlations can be seen between these hieroglyphic symbols and many later depictions of the alchemical stage represented by the androgene and its divine offspring. This inspiring moment seems to indicate a mastery over the coils of time, perhaps indicative of a timeless period in which the higher consciousness of the deceased can reside with the gods. In the twelfth hour, the process is complete. <clears throat> the bark, now with a scarab beetle in the front, is being towed th through the backbone of this enormous serpent, which Valadolubis thought was a parallel to the Kundalini energy of the Hindus, in which the which lies coiled at the base of the spine. Any real technology for navigation through the wheels of the afterlife might also include a gate for a return to physical incarnation. The cycle returns to where it began. And here, this is a parallel expression of the, 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 the bark of transformation passing through or, or releasing the Kundalini energy, and this results in a new sun in the scarab beetle pushing the associated with the the head of the dead king what's associated with the new sun pushing its way through the earth into a into immortality actually in other words it's a, another expression of the the pyramid text ban ka unite become a star join the company of ra and sail with him across the sky in his boat of millions of years it's a similar parallel. This is, this is the same teaching expressed in New Kingdom terminology in this extraordinarily complex text. The tomb itself was only one component of this science of life and death. The pharaoh's body also played an important role in this strange technology. This takes us actually to the, to the strange practice of mummification, our embalming rites that we carry on today routinely in a number of funerary traditions are probably um, pale versions of what the Egyptians went through thousands of years ago. Over the course of a couple of thousand years, this process got more and more elaborate until in the New Kingdom, in the tombs of the, of the Valley of the Kings, that process reached a culmination that is incredibly complex and uh, to us, somewhat repellent. After these 70 days, the, uh, the mummy is swathed in mummy wrappings and cloth, which is into which are wrapped all sorts of magical amulets, scarabs, funerary texts themselves, and the body is finally brought to its final resting place. Now, the the process seems to us, to say the least, excessive. But if we start from the, if we start from the proposition that maybe the Egyptians knew what they were talking about, it's it's worth looking at this as something perhaps more than just superstition. Superstition, or an incredible amount of detail lavished upon superstition. Maybe this accounts for the both the incredible attention, work, money time that went into mummifying a dead pharaoh and this kind of shiver that comes through you when you think of it there's something there's something repugnant about it you shouldn't need to have to go through all of that the thinking was that perhaps as long as the physical body of the pharaoh existed the discarnate or disembodied ka or soul of the king was not obliged to reincarnate. And that corresponds in its own way to the Tibetan understanding that the objective of the whole exercise of life, you might say, is not to reincarnate, but to become a star and join the company of Ra and sail across the sky in his boat of millions of years. So I can't say if that is actually the explanation, but to me it made sense. It accounted for both the incredible amount of attention paid and that somewhat repellent feeling that you get when you are taught about this process because it's in a way it's a kind of a, a spiritual dodge you might say 
that um, you're kind of given as much time as you need to carry on work that is supposed to be done in theory during life and if there is anything to the notion of spiritual work carried on in the disembodied state then to that let's say to that ongoing work as long as the body remains uh, the soul is not obliged to reincarnate and in the case of, of these of the mummified pharaohs if they're if the mummies are not pillaged and ruined and exposed to the elements if they are actually left in their original resting places they are there effectively eternally because it, they're, they're subject to geological time, not to any other kind of time. The mummies that have been found now and exhumed and examined and studied and x-rayed and so on are in pretty much perfect condition after over 3,000 years. So unpillaged, unstudied, and uh, unexhumed, uh, they'd simply be there forever for, until the mountains themselves or the, the, the tombs into which they're the, the deep caves that they're buried in themselves are destroyed in some sort of geological cataclysm. In any event, to me, this makes much more sense than simply assuming that the Egyptians were a bunch of superstitious idiots who put all of this incredible amount of, of attention into preserving the body of a dead pharaoh. The physical body of the pharaoh was rendered timeless, perhaps turned into an open gate, or perhaps a type of anchor. It was heavily supplied with all manner of spells, amulets, talismans, and other forms of magical protection. The strange practice of mummification still holds many mysteries. Why were some organs carefully preserved while the brain was scooped out and discarded? An unexpected insight into this question can be found in the work of Dr. Rick Strassman. His pioneering work has raised some very important questions about the pineal gland and its interaction with a strange hallucinogenic chemical known as DMT. Could the interaction of these two components be the seat of consciousness? Could it in fact be the gate through which we enter and leave each new life? In terms of how the study started, I was interested in seeing if I could determine a biological basis of mystical states. Um, that was probably how things started in the first place. Um, and I was quite uh, impressed with uh, some of the commonalities that seemed to occur between spontaneously occurring mystical states, um, such as those that occurred with meditation and with spiritual practices, and even those described from, you know, from near-death experiences. Uh, quite a few of those descriptions seem quite comparable uh, to descriptions of people on large doses of psychedelic drugs. And so I started to think about the, uh, of the possibility of some kind of compound in the brain with psychedelic properties that could be underlying some of these spontaneous experiences. I began becoming interested in the pineal gland as a, a possible source of some kind of psychedelic chemical in the brain. It's an extremely mysterious organ. It's, it's quite small. There seemed to be, uh, you know, some kind of a, a kind of visual correspondence with light and with color in the pineal. Um, and also it has quite a, a long history in the context of the mystical literature. Um, it's been described as the third eye and as the crown chakra those kinds of things. And it's spoken of as being activated when people attain quite high mystical states. And so one of the interesting aspects of pineal development also is that it appears in the human embryo at around 49 days of gestation. 
And 49 days is also the time that the Tibetans believe is required for one soul to incarnate onto the next. That was a pretty interesting you know, coincidence. At the time of the differentiation of the fetus into either male or female, that also occurs at that 49-day period. And so I was uh, struck with this interesting kind of temporal, you know, correspondence. And so as time went on, I started, you know, looking in, into some of the chemistry of the pineal gland. And it seemed as if it was capable of making a compound called DMT. DMT stands for dimethyltryptamine. It's, it's like a chemical cousin of serotonin. And it's quite a profound hallucinogenic type of chemical. It seemed as if the pineal contained all of the precursors and, and all the enzymes and all of the building blocks that would be required to make DMT. So I started speculating about perhaps there was DMT released in the pineal gland and stimulating the brain under extraordinary states. I'm either you know, through spontaneous mystical states, um, the time of death, or at times close to death. Um, and also I started speculating that perhaps it uh, was stimulated at the time of birth as well. The pineal gland is extremely well protected from stress, but you can stress the pineal gland if the stress is great enough. Pineal's protective mechanism can be overridden. And you know, so obviously the most stressful time in a person's life is at the time of death. The stress hormones like adrenaline and endorphins are at extraordinarily high levels at the time of death. Um, and so that could you know, possibly stimulate um, the formation and the release of DMT from the pineal gland at that time. And so you can you know, conceive of an individual's consciousness at the time of death being exposed to this big flash of DMT. So the last thing that one is conscious of in the body is the release of this huge amount of this incredible psychedelic compound. During his testing, Strassman discovered that abnormal levels of the chemical DMT triggered states of consciousness that closely paralleled common experiences of an afterlife. Well, that's true. Almost everybody experienced a, a, an extremely profound an extremely unmistakable separation of their body and their consciousness from each other. DMT at higher levels acted as a type of catalyst for near-death experiences. In fact, it seemed to actually induce the machinery of the afterlife to swing into motion. Um, I suppose one of the most unexpected aspects of the study's results was the frequency with which people described a you know, kind of contact with these intelligent you know, kinds of entities um, that were you know, conscious of them and interacted with the volunteers in this quite strange space. So these entities were both helpful and, you know, kind of malevolent as well. Some of the helpers were kind of angelic, while other of these entities um, were kind of malignant and threatening. And, and actually a handful of the volunteers experienced, you know, um, some traumatic in, encounters with these entities. The hallucinogenic state, like the dreaming state, is a temporary disconnection from the physical body. The dreamer becomes a discarnate intelligence, traversing higher realms, no longer bound to the restrictions of time and the standard laws of physics. DMT is, you know, kind of a portal or, you know, kind of a door for the transport of the spirit out of the body, it, it appears to me. In some ways, the occurrence of DMT in our brains, in our bloodstream, is, is, is you know, kind of validation um, of a spiritual reality in quite a few ways. Could this strange chemical be offering us a window into events to come in the afterlife? 
the frequent appearance of helpers or assistants to ease us through the transition to other planes of existence suggests at least a strong parallel with funerary and afterlife traditions throughout history. The discovery of the unusual properties of the pineal gland illuminate the many strange references to this most mysterious part of the brain. In strange and unexpected ways, the temples demonstrated a special emphasis on the pineal gland and its role as the intermediary between mind and body, the seat of consciousness and possibly the gateway into and out of life. The results suggested that the mysterious pineal gland may be linked to the mechanism through which we enter and leave our physical bodies. Could this have been the reason that the brain of the deceased pharaoh was removed? Was the pineal a kind of link or bridge or tether between the physical mummified body and the consciousness? From the very beginning of time, we see evidence of a science that described and somehow aided the transition of consciousness from a material existence to existence on a higher plane. It appears as though this science used as its training ground, the realm of dreams. The everyday act of dreaming may be a much more mysterious activity than most imagine. It may be a portent of things to come in the afterlife. The strange state of consciousness that one achieves during lucid dreaming might be the secret ability that opens doors in the afterlife. The dreams of a lazy or unstructured mind are diffuse, wandering. The dreamer is frequently not in control or in a state of passive viewership of the events in the dream. On the other hand, the dreams of a disciplined mind are lucid, meaning that a kind of continuous consciousness bestows upon one the ability to recognize the dream state and consciously act to control it. The lucid dreamer can in some cases exercise truly godlike powers in his dreams. This is the stuff that comprised the constant work performed by the initiates of the temple to harden and perfect this gem of attention, will and mental clarity. Latter-day rituals call for the ceremonial opening of doors. Are all these exercises training the subconscious to be continuous and proactive in the afterlife? It sounds like such a simple thing and um, Constance read it someplace and said, gee, uh, you can, uh, you can trigger lucid dreaming by just all day long as you pass through a door, touch it and go, am I dreaming? And it sounds so simple that you think, oh, this couldn't possibly work. First day I tried this, I'd walk through a door and I'd remember, oh, okay, I touched the, the, you know, the side of the door and go, am I dreaming? And every time I did that, I could feel my eyes focus a little bit differently, you know, and I sort of had to had to wake up and ask myself, yeah, am I dreaming? <laughs> and you do it a few times. And that night when you fall asleep, you find yourself walking through a door and you go, am I dreaming? And all of a sudden you go, yes, I, I am dreaming. You know, And from then on, you, if, you, if you're uh, careful with it, you can, you can uh, continue on with your lucid dream. As the lucid dreamer, becomes aware of his or her presence within a dream, the ability is suddenly bestowed to steer the dream, perhaps by suddenly becoming able to fly or levitate. When I was a kid, everybody dreams they fly, or at least I've talked to very few people that said that they've never dreamed that they've flown. Um, but I always had dreams that I was flying when I was a kid. And 
it would just be great. I was enjoying it, and I could tell I was really flying because I had this wonderful thrill in the pit of my stomach, and there was uh, the the perspective, uh, you know, horizons changed, and and uh, the perspective of my view uh, was just perfect, as if I was flying in an airplane. The same, the same feelings, and then all of a sudden, I'd I'd say to myself. Well, I'm flying, how can I do this? And that little bit of doubt all of a sudden just made me just tumble like Icarus. And um, everybody has th that experience, you know. I ask myself, well, how the devil am I flying? And then you lose your ability to fly. Well, since I've grown a little older and have done stuff like touching doors and other crazy little things, uh, I can pop out pretty regularly if I if I uh, am not too tired and just want to go to sleep I can pop out uh, uh, pretty easily uh, and I can stay out and I can do it with just a little bit of a uh, little bit of concentration all now all of a sudden I know don't doubt while you're flying by you know enjoy it you're out and stuff so it just took a little bit of concentration a little bit of, of um, uh, energy directed in a certain uh, in a certain way to keep me airborne in my dreams what might be happening during the death coma in those precious moments where people think you're dead you know but you know there's lots of stuff going on now what if you could keep your concentration going somehow directed it keep it going through uh, through the moments when most people allow themselves to dissolve they allow themselves to just go back into the energy matrix you know energy consciousness matrix or whatever it is I don't pretend to know but if there's a way to keep focused through one stage after another after another at least the book of the dead would indicate there's a goal that you can reach whereby you retain your individuality or at least your pure individuality and retain the consciousness of the continuity of your own existence and that might be the key to overcoming death. We see a very similar thing in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Only you've got a guy there actually saying, okay, okay, George, now you're going there. You're going to see one of these things, so watch out. You know? um, but there there's, seems to be this technique. And um, in the Book of the Dead, you're, you're barred at, certain, at a certain place. Uh, and the guardian of this of the gate demands that you tell him his name, and you go, well, you know, well, what's there's odd little names, you know, scale pan of wine is your name, you know, or dirty sandal is your name, or you know something. But everything's got a name, and he goes, oh well, oh well, okay, then you can pass, but you got to do something else, you know, and uh, so. Evolution seems to be a process of, of resistance to something and then overcoming that resistance and then being mutated by that struggle and then you move on. That seems to be how evolution works. Why shouldn't it work in consciousness also? Every initiatory society today, let's say the Masons, uh, Everybody's dad or grandfather is a mason, and they've all gone through this kind of thing. Um, it's no secret that, that in, in the initiatory process, you're stopped at a door. you got to really knock at the door of the temple, you know? And um, uh, you have to pass certain... You're questioned, just like in the Book of the Dead. You're questioned, and you have to come up with the right answer, or you don't get through. And just step by step, well, you get this far into the temple, you meet somebody else, and hey, wait a minute, buddy, you know, you're not getting past here unless you do something, and then you, you do that. It's just like in the, the, the 
Book of the Dead, only maybe not as, as uh, complex. So the, um, another thing in masonry that, that, that I think sets it a, really apart from and really makes it a mystical organization uh, although many of my father would say, no, it's not a mystical organization, you know. That just pages after pages in the index of Kabbalah, you know. Come on, Dad. But what uh, makes it uh, mystical, even with those uh, members who don't have a mystical, you know, bent, is that they have to memorize tons of stuff. Tons of stuff. The master's lecture is 45 minutes to, to uh, you know, an, an hour, depending on the speed. And it's wonderful stuff. And these guys do it. They're 90 years old up there doing it, you know. Just like whoever had to prep themselves with this Book of the Dead thing. Okay, they had to memorize a ton of stuff. So the... I can just imagine. It's like a pep talk, you know. Okay, I'm dead now. Some, I, you know, I better take control of this experience. Otherwise, I'm going to be eaten by a, you know, a hippopotamus with a crocodile head. You know, my soul's just going to just, just disperse. You know, so I better get a hold of myself. Okay, I'm walking through a door. Uh-oh, there's a guy there. I know his name. He's going to ask me, what's my name? You know, I know his name. You know, uh, uh, you know, Crocodile Sandal is your name, you know. And just one thing after another, don't stop. Okay, don't stop. Don't pause. You've got this and this and this. I know your name. Here's the name of your socks. Here's the name of your floor. Here's the name of the hasp on the door. Here's the name of the thing. Okay, go on, go on. Okay, then I go on to the next step. And then I memorize. I've got this all memorized. I know just what I'm going to see. I know just what I'm going to want to say. I've got, I've built this temple inside me with my memory. I, I've already built it. Okay. And it's inside me, and I'm going through the thing, and there's a door way at the other end I'm shooting for, and I'm not going to take a breath. I don't need to take a breath. I'm dead. I'm going to go all the way to the, to the end before I let my concentration drop. And if you get all the way to the end, you've gone someplace in your own, in your own temple that most people never get to in the death experience. In a strange sort of way, I could see how it might even hold the key to overcoming death. Overcoming death is just uh, 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 gaining knowledge of the, 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 or having consciousness of the continuity of existence. And there might be a technique in order that would enable you to uh, uh, perpetuate your consciousness of the continuity of your own existence. And the Book of the Dead may, uh, may hold that. Lucid dreaming may signal the onset of a higher state of consciousness. It may be a badge of attainment for the initiate, as is suggested in our chemical allegory. The metaphor of the Philosopher's Stone, as applied to lucid dreaming, is a revealing one. Lucid dreams make their first appearance as fleeting moments in the dream state, with conscious work and practical exercises that reinforce the ability to lucid dream, the moments of waking dream time become more extended and controllable. In the metaphor of the Philosopher's Stone, the lesser stone is perfected through a crystallization or hardening, rendering it permanent. From here, we can extrapolate an even higher state where the disincarnate intelligence of the deceased 
can be equipped with the mental tools, the strength and persistence of consciousness to remember itself through the transformation process and achieve a lucid afterlife. In this case, the Philosopher's Stone is the perfecting and making permanent the ability of the dreamer or the deceased to exercise conscious control, to rule the mysterious other world, accessed in both the dream state and the afterlife. The faculty of imagination seems to be the womb in which the fetus gestates. We can now see the process of perfection of the materia prima come full circle. If the alchemical steps are carefully observed and the great work is persisted at during life, one's consciousness becomes the purified and perfectly structured philosopher's stone, the charcoal that becomes a diamond. It is impenetrable, permanent and highly valuable. It becomes the permanent vessel of the self through the higher registers. now in the year 2003 um, ample literature testifying to near-death experiences paranormal experiences again these are mocked at by the opposition by the skeptics but the people who've had those experiences and in fact very serious scientists and scholars who studied those people are convinced that they're not crazy and they're not fooling themselves and that there is something that survives the body after death so here in the valley of the kings we see a testament to that Egyptian, call it belief, call it understanding, call it what you will, but in order to get anything out of the concept, and in fact anything out of this episode, it's useful to bear in mind that the Egyptians quite possibly knew what they were talking about when they went to this incredible amount of attention to mummify the body of the pharaoh, and the even more incredible attention that they put into building these fabulous magically decorated tombs. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, and I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta sheeple narrative. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening and namaste.